Hi, this is Mikel Jolet. My new book is called Hollywood Park. You're listening to Books on Pod and my conversation with Trey Elling, a great dude who's a great reader. Really love this conversation. Check it out. Hello, readers. Greg Graffin is the frontman for Bad Religion and a published author. His latest book is a memoir of Bad Religion's 40 Years Together, co-written with the other members of the band and punk writer Jim Ruland. It's called Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion. Greg, thank you for the time. How are you today? Great. So, Greg, this is a unique memoir in that the whole band gets credit for writing it, along with Jim Ruland, and it's written in third person. Who initiated the idea for this book, and why did you guys decide to tackle it as such? Well, I recognized that there was a gaping hole in the growing literature of punk rock, and then namely that most of the narratives were pretty ignorant and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I just mean they seem to ignore a big part of the history of Southern California music. And we were not included in a lot of the historical narratives that had come out about punk. So, you know, I just figured, well, that's because no one's ever heard the story before. So we got to tell our story. And all the guys in the band agreed that we should find someone talented enough to be able to carry through a a massive amount of information and interviews and distill it down into a pleasing narrative. So that's when we found Jim Ruland and, you know, he spent a couple years interviewing people and then the result is what you have in your hands. It's a beautiful final product. And this obviously isn't the first time that you guys are really helping to evolve the narrative, the conversation in punk rock. It's pointed out early in the book that from the beginning, one of the most profound things that separated Bad Religion from other punk acts, it wasn't your musical talent, it was your willingness to try and advance the conversation beyond the standard punk mantra of fuck everything. What allowed you to do this even as a 15-year-old in 1980? Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with probably my own sort of interesting background because my parents got divorced and I moved to Southern California from Wisconsin. My dad stayed back in Wisconsin and I would actually spend my summers with him and I spent the school year in Los Angeles. So, you know, at that time in the middle of the 1970s, those were two really different kinds of experiences. (laughs) The Midwest Rust Belt and the Southern California lifestyle are like two ends of the spectrum of American existence. And <laughs> so from a young age, I was 11 when that happened. Spent all my school years in L.A. And all the summer times back in uh, the land of cheese, you know. <laughs> so it was like I knew that the narratives coming out of Southern California sort of predominated and were sort of more the romantic notion of the perfect American lifestyle. And in fact, all my friends back in Wisconsin, who I to this day are still my buddies, you know, people I grew up with, they all sort of looked at it with envy that I got to go to California to go to school. And yet I knew that all was not tranquil in Southern California. You know, 
even back then, population was an issue. The schools were very, very crowded. And I'm not saying we suffered. It wasn't really suffering, but it was an existence that wasn't all rosy. And we lived in the San Fernando Valley, which was kind of a cookie cutter existence with houses that all looked the same and kind of typified by the album cover of our album that came out in 1987 called Suffer. And that album sort of, I think it resonated with so many people because they recognized that Southern California did have a lot of its own problems. And it did have a lot of suburban unrest, if you will, that was every bit as disturbing to those who were suffering in that kind of environment. So my upbringing allowed me to see the two different sides of every story, really. And I thought that that's kind of what punk is all about, is questioning the currently held beliefs and trying to offer some uh, lens through which people can view the world a little bit more in focus. How did you and Brett Gerwitz first hook up? Well, we met through a friend at school. Brett was a little older than me, so he was able to drive to the Ramones concert, and I couldn't drive, so (laughs) I was lucky that he borrowed his parents' car. And we got to <laughs> we got to go see the Ramones, and you know he was in a band before me, and uh, I think he was disgruntled with his band. You can read about it in the book. Mm-hmm. So his friend said you should get, or I think I convinced our friend Tom. I told him, yeah, I'm a really good singer. Yeah, I was bragging because I had sung in choirs back in Wisconsin. I was in the choir at school, and I always got picked to sing the solos, the vocal solos. So I thought, yeah, I can sing anything. And I, you know, he said, you and Brett should form a band. So that was kind of how Brett and I met through a friend. And I convinced Brett that I was not only a good singer, but also a songwriter. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was a a pretty good self-analysis by you when it's all said and done. Now, when you guys got the band going, you were pretty laser focused on getting recorded and on a record in pretty short order. This initiative is obviously not always common amongst teen boys, but you guys did it. And uh, eventually you do come out with that inaugural self-titled EP. And then you end up getting played on the airwaves via Rodney on the Rock on K-Rock Radio, who was very important to the L.A. punk scene in the early 1980s. What was it like to hear Bad Religion on the radio for that first time? Well, Rodney's show was uh, legendary, you know, and every Sunday night... You were supposed to be going to bed, getting ready for school on Monday. But me and my friends were staying up late. Actually, you know, Rodney encouraged his listeners to get the tape recorders out and push record. Get this stuff down on on your tape recorders because these records that I'm going to play, you can't buy them in the stores. This was like imports that he was playing from Europe and the young London punk scene at the time, and playing some rare acetate pressings from Los Angeles bands. And Rodney was just a cult figure DJ, and I was part of the cult. <laughs> Every Sunday night, I'd, I'd be listening. And it, the problem was, I think his show went, I think, till almost 2 in the morning or something. 
So, I mean, it was a late night Sunday show and everybody tuned in. Well, so we knew that we had to get some music recorded or we didn't have a chance as a band. So, yeah, we were able to pay for some studio time and we went and recorded a tape. We didn't have a record. We just had a tape. And through some acquaintances in the scene, most notably Greg Hetson of the Circle Jerks, he was our buddy. And uh, he said, hey, we're going in the studio to be on Rodney's show. Well, we couldn't believe it. This was our chance to get our tape to Greg and then for Greg to give it to Rodney. And sure enough, it was actually Lucky of the Circle Jerks. The drummer, Lucky Lehrer, said, here's some of our friends from the Valley, from (laughs) San Fernando Valley. (laughs) They've got a new song out, and Rodney played it. And so we couldn't believe it. It was middle of the night on a Sunday, but sure enough, we heard Sensory Overload being played on the radio. You guys really burst onto the scene with that first full-length album, How Could Hell Be Any Worse? And you followed it up with that second album, Into the Unknown, which was a pretty drastic departure from the first full-length album, sound-wise. And it was not well-received. But here's the thing about a situation like that, Greg. Smart, successful people learn lessons from their failures and otherwise have a pretty short memory in plowing ahead. You're a smart guy who has also been successful over time. What did you learn from Into the Unknown? Well, I would love to say that I learned an instant lesson, you know, But when you're that young, you don't learn very fast. Hmm. But then, as you probably know, after that album was released, there were probably two years before we ever went in the studio again. So we were more recovering from shell shock (laughs) than uh, actively learning from our mistakes. But let's put it this way. By the time we put out that next album... It was actually an EP that when we went into the studio, we titled it Back to the Known. (laughs) So, I mean, it was saying, okay, listeners, you gave us your feedback and we got the bad reviews. And we're going to go back to what is known, that bad religion sound that you seem to like on the first album. So we did learn by making a mistake. But I would say that you have to first have the drive to not give up. And so persistence, you know, even today, I give a lot of credit to people who just brush off their failures. They let it be known that they're disappointed, but then they get up and they try again and they do something better, more refined. Because to me, that effort is worth 80% of the grade. As you mentioned, the band did hit pause for a few years, and everybody kind of went their own way and started doing their own thing. For you, that meant pursuing an anthropology degree from Wisconsin and then UCLA. You guys do end up getting back together for Back to the Known. You end up finishing that undergrad degree at UCLA, and before starting a master's program there, you took a quarter off to explore the Amazon with the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles as their collector of birds and mammals. That's a hell of a job title there. How was that trip, and why did it give you a greater appreciation for the band? Well, the trip itself uh, ended in, here's one of those failures. I had this romantic notion of visiting the Amazon basin. And, you know, when you have romantic notions, it often dooms the trip from the (laughs) get-go. Because doing field work is very hard. It's very difficult. 
work. It requires really good organization and persistence. And to boot, we were in the lowland basin of the Amazon jungle in Bolivia at a very tumultuous time in that country's political affairs. And there was a coup d'etat that occurred in the country while we were doing our work. So it ended abruptly. And yet I was left alone to do the collecting, you know, alone in the jungles at the age of 21. And it was a daunting task and it was frightening. And uh, it was during those long nights that I started concocting ideas about the band and concocting ideas for the new album that we needed to do, which maybe because I was suffering in the Amazon, the title eventually became Suffer. (laughs) But the main thing is I was very fortunate to get through my misery And now looking back on it, it was an incredible experience, of course. The areas of the jungle that we were exploring had never been mapped. So we were the first people to map these tributaries to the Amazon River. Looking back on that, it was a very enriching experience. But I would have probably been forlorn, and I may have thrown in my academic career and not pursued a PhD had I not had that other part of my brain that saved me, which was music and being able to concoct a scenario where my band would be coming back together. It gave me hope to get through a tough time. You just mentioned Suffer. Why are the song Suffer and the album, both out in 1988, so important for the evolution of Bad Religion? Well, that came only through this body of literature that I told you about that has been springing up around the history of punk. A lot of the old narrative seemed to say that punk just started in New York or Detroit, went over to England, and by 1982, punk was dead. And then they say, but 10 years later, Nirvana happened. Hmm. So there's like this 10-year gap between 82 and 92 or 93, that people just don't have a lot of data. They overlooked an important thing. And that's precisely the time that bad religion became more industrious. And I think in the middle of that block of time, it's now acknowledged that the album Suffer was a polarizing event in that empty period because everyone who loved punk sort of rediscovered their love through that album, Suffer. It was voted the best album of the year by numerous punk magazines, and it ended up just sort of revitalizing a scene that was dead. And if it hadn't happened, many writers have suggested recently that if it hadn't happened, there may not have been a Nirvana or a Green Day or an Offspring. So that's sort of why one of the... um, writers I'm thinking about, Ian Winwood, called Bad Religion America's most significant punk band Mm. because of that 10-year gap where hardly anything was happening in the world of punk. You guys toured Europe for the first time in 1989, and you realized pretty quickly when you got to Germany that there was something different going on overseas in terms of your popularity versus the States. 
Y'all were literally so popular in Germany that you actually got to play a show in East Germany before the Berlin Wall came down. How was that? Yeah, that was really crazy because the uh, Berlin Wall was, I mean, it was frightening. We had heard about it in school, but when we went over there, it was the year that eventually was going to be the end of the Berlin Wall. But even up until the end, it was a frightening and a imposing structure, and it was guarded by armed soldiers. And yet those soldiers were friendlier now than they were for the previous 20 years. But, you know, they were more tolerant, but they still had their protocols. So it was frightening for anybody from America, you know, especially to be there for business reasons, if you'll allow the entertainment business. We didn't look at it as a business, but we were there for not touristic reasons. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a frightening thing. But once again, we were very adventurous, so we felt like, what's the worst that could happen? (laughs) (laughs) And when we got there, people were so appreciative, and, you know, they loved punk music, so that made us feel instantly at home. Now, Stranger Than Fiction came out in 1994. That is my wife's all-time favorite album of yours, and she's certainly not alone among the multitude of bad religion fans who think so fondly of Stranger Than Fiction. We were actually listening to the lyrics of Leave Mine to Me last night. Here are desperate times upon us. There are codes of white and black. Political resentment and people start to crack. There's hate and opposition. There's fumbling dialogue. Yet you sit here and judge me, and you think it makes a difference. (laughs) A sign of truly great work is something that resonates even decades later. Does it feel good or bad that some of these damning critiques of society seem as, if not more, relevant in 2020 as they were 10, 20, 34 years ago? Well, thanks for the uh, acknowledgement. I think uh, what you've pointed out is true, that you know, as a songwriter, what you strive to do at least what I've striven to do, is to try and make words that are not necessarily capitalizing on the moment, but something that can be universally applied to the human condition. It's kind of a philosophical approach to songwriting. And I think that's one of the things that has always set bad religion apart, is that both Brett and myself were always kind of philosophy nerds from the time we were teenagers, we were interested in these big picture questions and we wanted to find sentiments and share them in songs that could be applied to the human condition. So it doesn't surprise me that words we've written about in the past are relevant today. So, I mean, as a songwriter, then I feel like it's a very satisfying thing to have identified one of those human universals. But as a human being, as a caring person, as someone with empathy, it's a little bit sad (laughs) that those words couldn't be a thing of the past and that they are perhaps more relevant today. So our only hope is that people will identify and recognize those songs, commit them to their playlist in their minds, and maybe it will have an impact on the way that they share their ideas and their own empathy with other people. 
Why do you think of The Gray Race as the band's most emotional album? Oh, me, um, I think maybe Jim Ruland wrote that. I'm not. <laughs> he, he had attributed it to you, so if it's incorrect, then that's yeah. okay too. No, no. I, I mean, he probably maybe had taken some poetic license. I can speak to the emotion in that album because that, that was a very rough time for me personally. Brett had just left the band. Okay, so half the songwriting team was being split up. Brett and I are kind of. We relish our teamwork, our friendship and our teamwork. We're like a family in that respect. And he left the band. And this, it was a difficult thing for me to go through. So professionally, if you will, as a professional songwriter, I was under a lot of strain. And then uh, in my personal life, it was the same exact year that my marriage fell apart. And, you know, we had two young kids at home. And it was extremely difficult and trying for me to get through that emotional turmoil on the family front and on the professional front. You know, if Brett had blamed his departure on me, it probably would have been completely devastating. But there was that glimmer of hope that that it wasn't, you know, due to my anything that I had done. And I think Brett, all these years later, will testify to that. So I, I realized, you know, my family's kind of crumbling on every front and my professional team is also. And I decided instead of wallowing in misery to pick up the pen and guitar and piano and start writing an album all by myself. So the Grey Race was, you know, an example of an album that, first of all, is that Brian Baker helped me write some of it but in general the lyrical content and the emotion in it is due to that period of suffering personally and you know i had to identify once again some of those universal emotions that was going to make for an interesting album and hopefully resonate with people and it ended up being a very popular album so i was satisfied in the long run was that the album that rick okasic helped produce that's correct. He was a producer. Considering his songwriting chops, what did you learn from him? Uh, Rick, first of all, he was a really good friend. And, you know, if you can find a producer who's going to be a friend, an ally, that's 90% of the success right there. And he was encouraging. He was not too heavy-handed in his editing. We would have songwriting conferences where he would, with a very light touch, adjust certain meanings or adjust certain words here and there. But in general, his encouragement, you know, he, I'll never forget. He said, Greg, it was such a nice thing to say. No one had ever said it to me before. And coming from someone like him who I respected, it meant a lot, obviously, because I haven't forgotten it to this day. He said, Greg, you're an artist. You'll get through this. Hmm. You know, and I think that gave me the confidence that even in the darkest times, if you retain your glow and your hope in your artistic pursuit, it can get you through. 
Perhaps on the flip side of that, Greg, your bandmates believe that Todd Rundgren was one of your musical heroes growing up. You not only met him, but you worked with him when he produced the album that eventually became The New America in 2000. Is there any truth to the old cliche, never meet your heroes? (laughs) I don't believe that. And I saw how Jim concluded that section in the book. And, you know, he concluded it with a quote that said, yeah, Todd used to be my hero but now he's just my friend. Well, I don't consider the word just as appropriate. I think I probably said he used to be a hero. Now he's my friend. And someone can be a hero and a friend. And I think that's the best of both worlds. So the idea that you should never meet your heroes, I think that's a very cynical way of going through life. I think in my estimation, you should meet your heroes. You should meet your heroes and continue to learn from them. Todd was apparently well-known for being pretty hypercritical with people, especially from that producer's chair. What was the toughest thing he ever said to you specifically during the making of The New America? Yeah, you know, that's the funniest thing about it, is that I've read tons of articles about Todd, and most of them are from disgruntled artists who Todd was being too honest with. Hmm. I tend to have a pretty, when it comes to my music anyways, I think I've developed a pretty tough skin. And nothing he said insulted me because I thought he was committed to the project. He just wanted to make it better. So to this day, I still don't have any regrets or hard feelings about that. I think when people criticize him, you got to look at, consider the source and say, what's wrong with this equation here? I do think he's not got a good bedside manner, but I've been accused of that as well. So maybe we, you know, you don't want us as your doctor. So, (laughs) and plus, how hard can any criticism be when you're recording from a barn in Kauai, Hawaii? Yeah, it was pretty sweet. We got to live in Hawaii for six weeks on the North Shore, which should make anybody happy. So. So the New America album fulfilled your contract with Atlantic, which was the first and only major record label that you guys signed and worked with in your 40 years. In hindsight, would you have signed with a major record label in the early to mid-1990s like you did? Uh, Oh, yeah, I think, first of all, you're talking to the one person in the band who's not the shrewd businessman. I think I've learned a lot. I don't think I make stupid decisions in a business capacity, but I also don't pontificate on business affairs, and I don't like to speculate on what might have been. You may get a different answer from other people in the band, but the truth is I saw the positives in signing to a major label and getting massive distribution, being able to plug into that, it was very appealing to me. I was frustrated. You know, I went to college in upstate New York at Cornell, and here in Ithaca, Bad Religion didn't really have records in the stores. I'd go to the mall and look in the damn goodie or whatever the store was at the hmm. time, and before we went to a major, our records weren't in there. They were in the independent record store. But, you know, they would carry other Seattle grunge bands. Why aren't they carrying Bad Religion? So I noticed early on that being here in upstate New York was a good 
bellwether. I could test whether or not the distribution was as good as it could be. And I saw a hole there. I saw it could be better. And sure enough, being on Atlantic solved that problem. So the truth is Epitaph was growing exponentially at the time. So it's possible that had we stayed on Epitaph, it would have gotten us in those stores anyways and gotten us on the radio anyways because Brett was having great success with the offspring and possible that we could have shared in that whirlwind. But there's another way of looking at it too, and that is by going off of the independent label, there's only a finite amount of energy that can be devoted at an independent label to promoting a huge band. So if that had to be devoted to the offspring, maybe Bad Religion was better served by getting off the label so they could concentrate their effort on that one band. So there's many ways to look at it. And in the long run, would I do it again? Yeah, I guess we would do it again because there's no way of telling. It would have been a gamble to stick around. Last thing I'll say on that, I think I said this to Jim in the interviews, is that this is probably the most important. I've never gone against the business minds in this band. And the people who I respect in the band as my partners, if they had said, no way, we're going to stick it out on Epitaph, then I would have stuck around on Epitaph. I mean, (laughs) that's what it comes down to. Every one of the guys signed the major label deal. So it was unanimous signatures. And maybe we weren't communicating that well back then. But the truth is, I would not have been the sole opposition. You know, if everybody was against going to the majors, I would not have been the sole opposition. According to the book, you did a lot of the heavy lifting for 2013's True North. Why was this record so personal for you? And what was the inspiration for the first track on the album titled Fuck You? (laughs) That was a, uh, yeah, another tough time in the band. Again, personal family strife. That was the first time that, A long story short, you know, my son was in danger of not graduating high school, and I had to take some extreme measures, and I sent him basically to a boarding school. And in the letter that he wrote to me when he ran away from home, he said he's off to find his true north. I thought, hey, that's pretty poetic. Hmm. It was a sad time. I went probably nine months without seeing him or hearing from him right around the time he was a junior in high school. And that was precisely the time some of those songs were written. So a lot of it has to do with the relationship between the father and the son. And I think the video taps into that pretty nice. The video for True North shows a kid who's walking out the door after he's playing along to the Bad Religion album he just got. And Fuck You, I think, was just a memory of that first time you hear your sweet little offspring tell you where to go so (laughs) that was where that song comes from i thought maybe i taught him well because the song starts with a slogan really everybody i said everybody needs a slogan in their pocket or two you know so it's kind of served you well if you can pull out that fuck you once in a while but you never think it's going to come back at you so i taught him some kind of a punk ethic and so 
I guess there's success in there somewhere. <laughs> have a pretty good idea of where he gets that poetic mind as well. And, <laughs> and uh, Greg, it's pointed out that you give a quote at the end of the book. There's a belief within the band that we still haven't achieved what we set out to do. And if you don't believe you can achieve greater things, you might as well retire. What have you guys not achieved yet that you still want to? Oh, I think that's partly what I touched on earlier when I said the goal of a songwriter is to get people to assimilate your ideas. Hopefully your ideas are something that are universally applicable. And I think we will feel gratified. And who knows, you know, an artist's quest is never fully satisfied. So I can't speak to the possibility that we may never feel fully gratified because that might just be one of the plagues of being an artist. You know, that might just be a truth about being an artist that you are never satisfied. But certainly seeing a glimmer of enlightenment in society that's attributable to some song that we've written would be a big step towards achieving our goal. And so far, we haven't seen that. So there's more work to be done. <laughs> and last question, this does not relate to the book, but you mentioned your Wisconsin roots. You're actually a big Packers fan. I did not know that before reading this book. <laughs> what do you think happens yeah. to Green Bay in 2020? Honestly, I've not been focused on that because I'm too focused on the Brewers and the Bucks right now. So <laughs> the truth is, I'm a huge Wisconsin sports fanatic, and I've heard that the training camp is getting started, but there's going to be so many shifts and changes that go on before the season that I probably won't take notice until closer to the real game time and see what it's going to be like and see, more importantly, how many of the offensive linemen decide to stick it out because there is some question as to how COVID-19 might affect these big players uh, if they were to contract it. So like Lorenzo Cain on the Milwaukee Brewers who decided to forego the season, there might be some of that going on. That's why I don't want to speculate on the Packers because I don't even know what the team roster is going to look like. You feel pretty good about your Bucks, though? Honestly, yeah. I mean, I can get analytical on you. Of course, this is their year. They were on target to actually set an NBA record before COVID hit. You know, they were going to be the team with the most wins ever in the history of the NBA. They were on target for that. It was an easy target to achieve. So now they're not going to achieve that. Now teams are starting to recognize how to throw bodies at Giannis, and half of the calls then will be offensive fouls which is getting Giannis really upset. And as you may have seen, he was suspended <laughs> for two games because he got upset. And so the, there's all this stuff happening now. So he was once unstoppable. Now it's going to come down to Chris Middleton and his great support staff. And if they're doing good, then they're going to win it. And it's really going to be them and the Lakers probably. That should not even be a close championship. You know, the Bucks should be able to smoke them. But for some reason, everyone's picking the Lakers out west. So It's a fashionable pick for sure. Yeah, Giannis went punk rock with that headbutt a couple of days ago. I think he's lost his mind a little bit, which is understandable because they, you know what it is? Okay, if you like sports, you'll understand this. It's coming down to the same thing 
that is sort of a rhetorical question in the NFL, which is, what is pass interference? Okay, now we got to really slow down the cameras and say, what the hell is an offensive foul, right? Because what made him upset was clearly a blocking foul, but they called it on Giannis as an offensive foul. So if lowering your shoulder is always going to go against the offense, then Giannis has to make a big adjustment because he's so big and tall. The only way he can initiate his big strides is if he lowers his shoulder. And if the other team has figured out how to block that by putting a body in front of it, if they're going to get that call, that's going to change the entire dynamic of Giannis's abilities to score. So if the support staff is doing their job, that shouldn't make a difference. You know, you're right about that, though. There is a certain subjectivity to the blocker charge, much like with pass interference. And if you're allowing guys who are significantly smaller than the Greek freak to kind of step under him as he's going to the hole, that changes everything. Yeah, you can throw your whole small team at him, you know. So it's getting, yeah, I don't know what to think about it, but it could definitely change the dynamic. He is Greg Graffin, the front man for Bad Religion and a published author. His latest book is a memoir of Bad Religion's 40 Years Together, co-written with other members of the band and punk writer Jim Ruland. It's called Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion. Greg, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. My pleasure. Hope you have a great day.